Chapter Twenty Five of The Expressman and the Detective. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pete Williams. The Expressman and the Detective by Alan Pinkerton. Chapter Twenty Five. The two women left Barclay perfectly dumbfounded and walked over to the garden. Mrs. Maroney said she was going to New York in the morning to see her husband, and begged the madam to accompany her. Madam Imbert agreed to go, saying that she had some purchases to make. They concluded to hire Stemple's team in the morning and drive into Philadelphia, put it up at some livery stable, go to New York, visit Maroney, return to Philadelphia, and drive home in the evening. Nothing of importance took place the day they visited New York. Green knew of their intended trip and shadowed them to New York and back. All he had to report was that nothing had transpired worthy of mention. It is quite as important to find that nothing takes place as to note what actually occurs, for thus the case is cleared of all uncertainty. The shadow reports truthfully of all things just as he finds them. The women, on their arrival in New York, went directly to Eldridge Street Jail, and Mrs. Maroney introduced Madame Imbert to her husband. She then had a long private conversation with him, and afterwards rejoined Madame Imbert. The three had a pleasant chat, Maroney acting in all respects the part of a perfect gentleman. His face showed deep anxiety, but he talked very cheerfully, and told Madame Imbert that he hoped soon to have the pleasure of meeting her at Jenkintown. He assured her that he would soon be free, and would then take vengeance on his enemies. He said he intended to go to Texas, and buy a ranch. The Rio Grande country just suited him, and he expatiated at length on the beauty of the country, and the salubrity of its climate. After a few hours passed in social converse, they parted. Mrs. Maroney went to visit a friend on 31st Street, and Madame Imbert to do her shopping. They agreed to meet at the Jersey City Ferry at four o'clock. Green followed Mrs. Maroney. She visited her friend, stopped some time, and then met Madame Imbert at the appointed place and time. On the road to Philadelphia, Mrs. Maroney spoke of her husband, and said he was very much pleased with the madam, and thought her a very fine-looking, intelligent woman, in fact just the person to help them. But he was about to carry out a plan which he knew would be successful. White was soon going to be released on bail, and would then arrange everything for him. In the meantime, she was to wait quietly and do nothing, as he would shortly be with her. On getting into Philadelphia, they ordered their team and drove out to Jenkintown. The same day, White came to Maroney and said, "'Congratulate me, old fellow. Shanks has just brought me some letters from my attorneys, and I find that all has gone well.' My affairs are in a much better condition, and now, after a long and irksome confinement, I am about to be liberated on bail. In two or three days, or by the end of this week, at farthest, I shall be at liberty. I am delighted to hear of your good fortune, answered Maroney in a hearty tone. You must not forget me when you are out, but as soon as you can arrange your own affairs, turn your attention to mine. I am anxious to see the plan to entrap Chase at once set in operation. Won't it be a good joke when McGibbony nabs him and finds the money on his person? Ha, ha, ha! What will the Adams Express say then? They'll feel rather sore over their pet, I reckon. 
He laughed over the idea for some time, while a fiendish expression of joy settled on his face. "'I'll attend to it as soon as possible,' said White. "'But you see I have no money of my own that I can use at the present time. I would gladly advance you the necessary amount if I could, but all my available cash will have to go as security to my bondsman. I believe you are a thorough good fellow, and will cheerfully do all in my power for you.' "'I don't wish you to advance the money for me.' I know you would if you could, but you and I are about in the same fix. We have plenty of funds, but can't use them at present. I believe I shall be able to raise the money in some way before long. If the job works well with Chase, I shall be completely vindicated. Another thing, the suit against me will soon come up, and my counsel says that I am sure to win it. I shall be the only witness on the part of the defendant, and shall have to swear that I never took any of the money. This will be the truth, as a cent of money never came wrongfully into my possession. It is a good thing they did not know I had an interest in the livery stable, or they would surely have seized that. I have a good lawyer, said White. He has carried me through successfully, and as soon as possible after I get out I will help you. The next day Bangs disguised himself and called at the jail as White's counsel. He had a long talk with him in his cell, and then walked briskly out in the manner of a lawyer with a large practice, whose moments are precious. But lawyers have one object, while he had another. Bangs wished to avoid the scrutiny of the prisoners, as there might be some of them who knew him. White came smilingly up to Maroney after Bangs left, and said, "'My case is surely arranged, and I am off to-morrow.' "'Are you indeed?' exclaimed Maroney. "'I am delighted to hear it.' But his voice sank. It seemed as if he wanted White out, so that he could help him, but was afraid to trust him. He turned and walked away, came back, and again congratulated White. White assured him that he was going in the morning. "'So soon,' remarked Maroney. "'Well, I am happy to find you are. "'I don't want to see any man kept in jail.' My own case will soon come up, and after I am cleared here, the trial in Montgomery will be a perfect farce. I shall write to my wife, and tell her how well you have succeeded. Isn't it strange, White, that I have taken such a liking to you? You are the right man for me. There is not a soul in this jail but you whom I would trust. He walked into his cell, and wrote a letter to his wife. Several times he came out and conversed with White. He seemed to have something on his mind which he wished to disclose, but lacked the courage to do so. He finally backed down entirely, and concluded to wait. He played several games of cards with White and the other prisoners, and then conversed with Shanks, who came to remove some of White's baggage. He found that White had taken a room on Bleecker Street, and the moving of his effects showed how near at hand was the moment of his departure. The next day was an eventful one, and clearly proved the soundness of my theory. After breakfast, Maroney took White's arm, and walked around the hall several times with him, his manner plainly showing that he was very much embarrassed. He finally drew him into a quiet corner opposite to where the prisoners were congregated playing cards and amusing themselves in various ways. "'White,' said Maroney, "'I am going to entrust to you my secret. I feel that I can trust you. I, I know I can. I have watched you closely, and I find that you are true as steel. Now listen, I have invited you to take hold of my matters, and in order to give you a clear understanding of my case, 
it becomes necessary for me to divulge to you what at present is known only to my wife and myself. It is useless for me to ask, but still I wish you to give me your solemn promise to keep my secret inviolate. Oh, yes, I'll do that, said White, but I have got a good deal of business of my own to attend to, and if you think you can't trust me, you'd better keep it to yourself. No, no, nothing of the kind. I, I know I can trust you, said Maroney, and you have given the promise. Now, White, who do you think stole the fifty thousand dollars? I am sure I don't know, replied White. Well, I did. I stole it from the company and have been able to keep it so far. If you'll assist me, I shall continue to do so. Would you have stolen it if you'd been in my place? Certainly, exclaimed White. Do you think I'm a fool? I shall make a big pile in my operation. Then, said Maroney, if we only join forces, we shall make someone howl. Neither spoke for some minutes. White acted as if the matter was a common, everyday occurrence, but he thought, he has broken the ice. I shall soon hear it all. Maroney was the first to break the silence. He said, I first stole ten thousand dollars, which was brought to my office on Sunday by the messenger from Atlanta. This package was intended for a party in Columbus, Georgia. It had been missent and forwarded by mistake to Atlanta, instead of to Macon, and from Atlanta to me in Montgomery. My duty was, on receipt of the package, to immediately telegraph to Atlanta of its arrival, and to send it off by the train that left that evening for Columbus. I had no right to the package, and should have immediately rebuilt it and sent it off. I was certain that no one knew that it had been missent. It had evidently found its way into the pouch through a mistake, as it was not marked with the waybill, or its presence known to the messenger. I never thought I should be guilty of theft till the time, but the moment I saw the package it flashed into my mind that if I took it I would never be detected. The temptation was too strong to be withstood. I yielded to it, and, without any one seeing me, dropped the package under the counter. The messenger did not see it, and, as his way-bill checked up all right, soon left the office. I watched my chance, and put the packet of money into my coat-pocket, and went home. You see, White, that was my first offense, and I felt rather frightened. I felt sorry that I had yielded to the temptation, but could not part with the money. It seemed so completely to have infatuated me. I took it home and hid it, but did not tell my wife a word about it. In a short time dispatches were sent all around to the different agents to find, if possible, where the package was. I received several of them, but reported that I had not seen or heard anything of it. I was so assured of the impossibility of my detection that I had lost all the fears that at first assailed me, and was as cool as a cucumber. The general superintendent came around with several detectives, but they could not find the money. I was tried in many ways, but I never flinched, and they finally had to give the matter up. In a short time I asked for leave of absence to make a visit to the North. It was granted me, and I started off with the ten thousand dollars in my possession. I soon found that I was followed by a detective, and I led him a wild goose chase until I reached Richmond, Virginia, where I gave him the slip, and he never knew where I went. I did the same in the forty-thousand-dollar case. 
I gave them all the slip at Chattanooga. No matter about that, said White. If you're going to give me a statement, give me a clear one and not jumble everything together. Well, I gave the detective the slip at Richmond and went to Winsboro, South Carolina. There I passed myself off as a cotton buyer, but had great difficulty in making a purchase as Robert Agnew, a prominent cotton broker, held all the cotton in the neighborhood and did not care to sell as he expected a rise in price every day. After some dickering, I induced him to sell me $7,500 worth, which I paid for with the stolen funds of the company. I had the cotton shipped to R. G. Barnard, Charleston, South Carolina, to be sold, proceeds to be remitted to me in Montgomery. The cotton was sold and the amount forwarded to me in two drafts on New York, one of which I had cashed in that city and the other in Montgomery. I lost quite a sum by my speculation, as cotton did not rise but fell. I was perfectly contented to stand the loss as the stolen money was exchanged. I bought Yankee Mary with the $2,500 remaining, and returned to Montgomery after having successfully disposed of all the stolen money. On my return I found everything quiet and went on with my duties as usual. But one day the superintendent came to me and said the company had concluded to change agents, and that I had better resign. I did so at once, saying that I was just about going into business on my own account. I must say that when I met the general superintendent, I did not like his looks, as he seemed to suspect me. He made many inquiries as to how I got my money, but was unable to ascertain anything. The superintendent of the Southern Division asked me to take charge of the office until my successor arrived, and I willingly consented. The superintendent had much suavity of manner, and it was hard for me to tell whether he considered me guilty or not. I rather thought he suspected me. When I found that my time with the company was to be so short, I determined to make a good haul, as I knew I could never get a situation in the business again, for the Adams Express was the only express company in the South. I began to look around to see how I could best accomplish my purpose. I studied the character of the different messengers, and thought Chase the best man to operate upon. I determined to wait until I had a good heavy run-out, and then put my plan in operation. Chase was a good, clever fellow, but careless. I tried him in several ways, and found that he could be gulled more easily than any of the other messengers. I could not do anything on the runs in, as the messengers checked the packages over to me, but on the runs out I checked over to them, and with a careless man like Chase, it would be the simplest thing in the world to call off packages, and as he checked them off, for me to drop them behind the counter instead of into the pouch. End of chapter 25 Recording by Pete Williams, Pittsburgh, PA